What would be some things that you fear? As I ask that question, I imagine there's certain things coming into your mind. It could be the death of a child, or it could be uh, thinking about being persecuted uh, for your faith. Or it could be lesser things. You're afraid of going into debt, or friends not liking you, or the thought of public speaking just terrifies you. There's, there's a lot of things that you can be afraid of. But did you know, actually, that there, there is a sense um, where there can be healthy fears? Like, for example, I like to stare at fires. How many of you are like me? I don't want to be in one. Right? Anybody? Okay. All right. Uh, there's something that I've noticed. I, I grew up all my life in Illinois, and there's a difference uh, between the weather in Illinois and Michigan in that I really miss the intense thunderstorms that Illinois had. Like, multiple times of year, thunderstorms shaking the ground. I love that. I know some of you might be terrified by that. I loved it. But I would never want to drive in those storms. You can't see out the window and you think you're going to die, right? Now, you might say, well, I don't know if that's like fear. And maybe, maybe another word uh, that we could have for it is, is respect. There's an awe at the power of the storm. I'm mesmerized by the fire. So we respect the power. And from a scriptural perspective, that's the idea of healthy fear, Recognizing the power of something, being in awe, not wanting to experience its punishments. And that actually, that type of healthy fear can be translated to relationships as well. For example, I would say that for me as a child, I had a healthy fear of my dad. I looked up to him. I was in awe of my dad in so many ways. My dad was the best man at my wedding. But I also had a healthy respect and I didn't want to disappoint my dad. Now, while there can be healthy fears, there's also unhealthy fears, which, to put it this way, ascribing too much power and attention to something and not wanting to live without it. So how does this apply even to what we've been going through in Genesis? If you think about Abraham's experiences in his life, instead of, instead of having a fear of God and trusting in the Lord, many times we see how he trusts his own schemes because he values his physical life more than God. He values Sarah or having a child at the expense of trusting the Lord. Or you think about Lot. And Lot and the destruction of Sodom, Lot loved the, the earthly pleasures of Sodom more than honoring the Lord. And so what we see in these scenarios is this reality that if we live for these lesser things, if, if we have a fear of these lesser things, that fear binds us and takes us away from God, who is life. And to be away from life is to embrace death. So in the scriptures, we're called over and over again to fear God. You were made to fear God, to be in awe of him to find life in that healthy fear. 
but we often find ourselves like Abraham or Lot. It's not just Abraham and Lot that have the problem with unhealthy fear. It's a problem of all humanity. We're all prone to fear the things of this world above fearing the Lord. But again, we were made for awe of God. We were made to not want to sadden his heart. Humans were made to make much of him. So in this narrative of Abraham, we get insight. We get insight through the the entire narrative, starting in chapter 12, of how the Lord patiently tests Abraham so that Abraham would live increasingly for God's glory, not just for his own way. So last week, when we looked at chapter 21, and we saw the birth of Isaac and Abraham being called to remove Hagar and Ishmael, and then this treaty with Abraham and Abimelech, we actually saw how Abraham was different. He acted different than how he did in the past. He seemed to really trust God. All the trials in Abraham's life were purifying him and purifying his faith. But now we come into chapter 22 and we get the test of tests. This is the test to reveal where is his heart before the Lord. And before we talk about the narrative, I want to give you the main idea of the sermon today, which is this, the one who fears God worships the Lord obediently surrendering to God and trusting in God's provision and goodness. The one who fears God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a few points, main points, that are based off this main idea. And the first two points, just to give you a heads up, the first two points, we're not getting into the narrative yet. The first two points serve as a foundation or context to the narrative. So we're going to start with the one who fears God. And we're going to simply look at verses 1 and 12. Why am I talking about fear? Why are we talking about fearing God? Well, let's just look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Stop. Move to verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you, say that with me, Fear God. Stop. Okay? The reason I'm reading these verses first is to get the context, right? We readers of this narrative are told that the Lord is testing Abraham. And the purpose, and what does that mean to test? If you remember a few months ago, I talked about this idea of testing. And, and, and not to think of testing so much as like going to school, taking a test, getting a good grade, proving you're awesome. Think of it more like a metallurgist who is testing metals. That's how even the scriptures, how God uses it later on in the scriptures, where, where gold has this, these impurities around it. And so there's the testing that takes place in order to remove these impurities so that then you actually see pure gold. That's, that's what this means. Over the course of time, God has been testing Abraham to remove these impurities. Now we come to this test. And what's going to be seen? Now, by the way, when this chapter starts, again, the emphasis is on Abraham being tested. And I think that even as I've talked to just a couple of people this past week about this narrative, they've thought, yeah, I wonder what Isaac was thinking. 
Or maybe some of you are like, I wonder what Sarah was thinking. And we're not told. So therefore, we're not going to emphasize them because the emphasis is on Abraham in this text. What does it mean? What's the purpose of this testing? Well, I've already said that come forth as gold, but, but what is God wanting to reveal? And what God's wanting to reveal, what we see in this text, is that Abraham fears him. Do you realize that's the goal of God in testing his children? That we would fear God. I, I'm, I know this might seem silly, but I want to see raised hands here. How many of you ought to fear God? So this sermon applies to you. This sermon applies to me. And we can't just walk away from this time saying, oh yeah, I ought to, I know, I know. But no, like, I need. My very life is bound up in the need for God. And I need to live. This is where we get in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember the preacher as he evaluates all different aspects of life and he says, you know, I tried this and that was satisfying for a while, but then it was vanity and I did this and that's vanity. I tried this, 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 that, the other thing. Nothing's perfect. How many of you have ever felt that way in living in this life? Nothing is right. So what should the conclusion be? This is what the preacher says. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is terrifyingly amazing, gloriously good as the judge bringing everything under his judgment. He is power. He is the creator. He's the point of life. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Live in awe of him. Amazement. Reverence. Desiring to obey him and not wanting to dishonor him. That's the goal. That's the goal of life. So if we, if you were made to fear God, and if you've turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and restoration with the Lord, then God's intent is to free you from worldly fears and to find life in knowing him. Now, if that's God's goal, what are the fruits or the results? What are the results of fearing him? That leads to the second point. The one who fears God worships the Lord. Let's just read verse 5 together. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Again, I know I'm jumping around, but we're trying to get a foundation here. Fearing God leads to worship. Abraham is on the way thinking he is going to sacrifice his own child. And he tells these people, stay here while I go and worship God. What? I, I don't even think I would have come up with that word, worship. 
But he does. Abraham saying, I'm going to worship him. A man by the name of Alan Ross, he said this, the true worshiper fears the Lord. That is, the true worshiper draws near the Lord in love and adoration and reverence, but shrinks back in fear of such an awesome deity. The one who fears God worships, worships. Now that should make complete sense. If you fear God, you worship him. Yep, that makes sense to me. It should. And yet, we can relate to the other narratives of Abraham, can't we? Where I worship God, but I also, you know, like have to hold on to my self-protection. And what is it for you? You say, I worship God, but it's people who, who just matter supremely, and, or money, or acceptance, or power, or reputation, or any number of things. What do you worship? What do you worship in this life? As I said last week, the word worship, it's like an accounting term in Hebrew. And all of a sudden, accountants perk their ears up. It is. Yes, it has to do with worth. It's worthship. What, do, what has the supreme weightiness? That's how the ancient world valued money. What was weightier? Okay? And so what has the greatest weight in your life? What has the greatest worth in your life? What, what, what do you really live for? You can say, I worship God, but you know Sunday afternoon. You know Monday. What is it that's binding you? What is it that's calling your affections and your attention? What can you not live without? Think about people who are addicts. They can't imagine living without alcohol or drugs. A workaholic can't imagine being of any worth unless they're successful at their job. A people pleaser. If people don't love them and appreciate them, they feel worthless. What can you imagine? What can you not imagine living without? Do you maybe worship that? How would fearing God and worshiping him set you free from the bondage you're in? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But what we're looking at with Abraham here is a man who fears God and thus he worships. And he's headed to worship. Which looks like obediently surrendering. Now let's read these verses, verses 2 through 6. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Then skip to 9 through 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the 
the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I find the narratives in Genesis to be extremely intriguing from, from multiple perspectives. Um, when the way Moses writes in certain stories is, is sometimes you get this sense of speed and urgency. Like when God and the angels appeared to Abraham and, and Abraham's rushing around, right? This narrative is painfully slow. Because God doesn't just say to Abraham, I want you to take your son and go. Did you notice what he says? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's piercing into the heart. Several times in this narrative, Isaac is referred to as Abraham's son. This is the child That by this point in time, this child was promised over 30 years ago to Abraham. Abraham's over 100 years old at this point in time. And now God is telling him to do the inexplicable. This makes no sense. Actually, even some modern commentators will accuse God of being wrong because of this. Because they're saying, see, he's just like the other Canaanite gods, the gods of Mesopotamia who call you to sacrifice your children. But let's just make this plain. What did verse 1 tell us God is doing? He's testing, right? He's testing Abraham. But Abraham doesn't know this. Abraham is discovering increasingly the character of God, right? With each test that he goes through, he's recognizing who this God is and seeing the character of this God. But this, I don't think, makes sense to Abraham. He doesn't know what's going on. And God is calling Abraham to sacrifice what he loves most. And God does this in a very unique way. Another thing with the verbiage here is if you compare how God spoke in Genesis 12 to how God is speaking here, it sounds very similar. Genesis 12 is when God told Abraham to leave the land and go to the land that was promised to him. Very similar verbiage here in the Hebrew. So Abraham should be picking up, wait a second, God, God's talking in the same way. That didn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. But this is, this is crazy. But has God shown himself faithful to Abraham in the past? Yes. God has shown himself faithful in the past. Did God take care of Abraham in the land? Yeah, he did. Did God reveal himself gracious to Abraham, even when Abraham feared others more than God? Yes, yes, absolutely. Now God calls Abraham to take his son and go to the land of Moriah to sacrifice his only son through Sarah, the promised seed of the woman, the son whom Abraham loves. And go sacrifice him. Now, by the way, the land of Moriah, in 2 Chronicles 3.1, that connects Moriah with Jerusalem. So this is now, today, many um, affirm that this is referring to actually the Temple Mount. Where the Temple Mount is today is where Abraham took Isaac. 
And on that temple mount, there have been thousands of sacrifices. And this is the first statement of sacrifice that God makes. And those thousands of sacrifices that take place after this communicate people's need to fear God, their need to worship Him, and their utter dependence on God. Because those who worship God, those who fear God, worship Him and obediently surrender. Now this is again actually what I find shocking about Abraham in this story. Because, as I've even already mentioned earlier, Abraham in previous situations seems to communicate a waffling. Even Jonathan's sermon from a couple of weeks ago was Abraham's other faith, right? We, we see this in him. But in the last chapter, Abraham obeys and trusts the Lord in letting Ishmael, his son, go. And we're told in that chapter he loves him. Okay, but God said he's going to take care of him. So he goes. But now God is saying, now I want Isaac dead. How does that fit? I can understand, like maybe understand why Ishmael out, but like he's going to do no good dead. This is the seed of the woman. And what we see, or, or actually what we don't see in this text, is Abraham doesn't pray to change God's mind. Maybe, maybe he prays, I don't know, but we don't see that in the text. What we see in the text is this resolute endurance, obedience. Picks up things. He goes with two other people. He walks in that direction, taking his son with him the entire time. Abraham perseveres to the sacrifice. And he doesn't do it because it's easy. This is not easy. He does this because God has been purifying his faith over and over and over again over the course of decades, and his faith is now coming forth as gold. And that leads to the next point. The one who fears God worships the Lord, obediently surrendering, trusting God's provision and goodness. The only way, the only reason, why you would fear God, worship him, and surrender is if you know he's good and he provides. Right? So verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. So stop here. Isaac's curious. How can there be a sacrifice without an animal? Very legitimate question. And if I was in Abraham's shoes, I'd be a weeping mess. Right? Crying the whole time. Then I hear my son ask the question. I'd just keep crying over and over again. Maybe he was crying, but we don't see it in the text. But the author of Hebrews actually gives us some insight into Abraham's mind at this point in time. In Hebrews, we're actually told that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. 
We kind of get a hint of that in this story because he tells the two men, we will come back. God never told him he was coming back. Somehow, Abraham's just like, none of this makes sense, but I know he's the seed of the woman. He's got to be alive. I, maybe God's going to bring him back from the dead. By the way, that's like crazy thinking from a worldly perspective, right? And yet Abraham knows God. God has proven himself to Abraham over and over and over again. This is who God is. This is what God said. God has always kept his promises. And whenever I think maybe his promise meant this instead, I was wrong. What God says he means. And so he's even willing to say, okay, even though this command is murderous, maybe God's going to bring him back from the dead. Abraham trusted God is good. Oh, that we would always believe that God is good. I'm reminded of Joseph when he speaks after having been sold into slavery by his brothers and he meets them again after about 20 years. You remember his words that he says to them? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's convinced that God is good. God is over it all and he is good. Or I think about Job, who lived about the same time period probably as Abraham. And after his sons, after his children are all taken in one fell swoop, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The design for the trials in our lives is to purify our faith so that we all can believe and will believe that God is good all the time. So that even when circumstances seem evil, we won't charge God with wrong. Abraham believes God is good. And not only that, Abraham clearly believed that God was going to provide the sacrifice that was essential. He trusted that the Lord provides. So let's read verses 10 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, amazingly, Isaac consents to this sacrifice. I mean, I say it that way because he's quite youthful and seemingly quite strong to carry all of this stuff. And his father is very old. And I would imagine he could have fought back and ran away. 
That's, that's about all I can infer from this text. Even that, can you imagine fathers being in that kind of position and seeing your child be so obedient to the Lord? And Abraham takes the knife and he pulls up his hand, ready to, as the text says, slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Don't. Stop. The Lord himself tells him to stop. Now, by the way, I think this affirms, actually, the later Israelite law that says that God would never call his people to slaughter their children in sacrifices. That was what the Canaanites did. But God doesn't do that. There's a greater reality in this text. The, the, the English translation of this Hebrew phrase says, Now I know, now I know that you fear God. And there's kind of this, this inference that we get in English when you read that as though God didn't know and now he knows. Does anybody find that problematic? Like, wait a second, like God is all-knowing and now he discovered something as if he didn't know it? I don't understand why it's saying now I know. I actually don't understand why it says now I know either. Because the Hebrew behind this phrase, you can find this phrase in Exodus 18.11, you can find this in 1 Kings 17, and in each incident, it's actually an expression of joy that a person experiences when they've received the effects of God's grace towards them. So, so maybe it might be a fine phrase to translate, but the word know has more of a relational understanding in, the, in, in that specific moment. So when, when the angel of the Lord is saying, now I know what, what God himself is saying, because I believe that the angel of the Lord is the Lord, that he is taking delight in Abraham's sacrificial obedience. Now, in this moment, oh, Abraham, oh, I see your faith. Isn't this amazing? God delights in his children and God delights in his children's sacrifices. And God's the one who's been doing the whole work all along. It reminds me of the scriptures later on where it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God is the one doing the work. And yet he'll delight over us. Wow. I love you, child. Wow. Look at this. He delights in the sacrifice of Abraham. How amazing. And as a result, we read verses 15 through 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withhold your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God restates the covenant, but there's an expansion here nestled in verse 17. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. That means Abraham's seed will conquer their enemies. 
Who's the original audience reading this? Israelites wandering, right? So as they read that, they should think, we can trust that our God. He, he has given us the ability to be victorious against our enemies. Will Israel trust? Will they believe? But there's a fuller and more complete ramification of this. And actually fuller and more complete ramifications of this whole narrative. And I, I first want to emphasize, and I've already somewhat done this, but emphasize again that God provides and God is good. Always. Even in the midst of trials. Do you believe, do you believe that God provides and God is good? Of course you're not going to say no right now. Yes, oh, yes, pastor, God is so good. He provides. But, but when you go through hardships, is God good? And does he provide? Like I, I, think that, I think that many times, and I understand this personally as well, life seems to be going well. I have no problems. Everybody likes me. All things are well, good. Sunday morning, there was no chaos with the kids. It was great. Come to church. All the songs were the songs I liked. Oh, mm. God is good. And then, chaos, pain, that week. Well, God is good. But, I want you to actually think about that. What are your yeah, but statements after God is good and he provides? God is good and he provides, but... Think about it. What's your yeah, but statement? For me, I can say, I know God is good. I know God is good, but my oldest son, whose name means the Lord is salvation, is rejecting Jesus. Is God good? Does he really provide if the salvation isn't received? Or you could say with me, I know God provides, but he also took one of our children in the womb. He seems good to others, but what about me? I'm, a I'm actually going to give you about a minute. If you take notes, great. If you don't, log it in your mind. Think, what are your yeah, but statements? I know God is good and he provides, but think about it.
I want you to really process what you've thought of or written down. Because to say, I know God is good and he provides, but if those, aren't, if those things aren't taken to the Lord and laments and prayer, those statements will become bitter seeds in you that will lead you away from God. There'll be temptations to believe that God really isn't good and God doesn't really provide. They will chip away at your fear of God and lead you to other things. Is God good? Yes, exclamation point. Does God provide? Yes, exclamation point. So if you fear God, you will worship him through sacrificial surrender because you trust in his goodness and provision. And maybe your trust even just looks like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Those are the yeah buts. Help my unbelief. Notice here, Abraham's worship is not coming in times of ease. It's often in the scriptures that it's in the times of darkness where real deep worship comes out of God's children. Often. It's in the times in our own lives when we're maybe struggling financially or we have immense medical problems. It's in those moments that God tests and tries and shows the gold where we say, God is so good. It's in the moment like in one of my friends I just found out a couple of weeks ago, 43 years old, four children, and she was just diagnosed with stage four cancer, liver cancer, metastasized to the colon. Oldest child is 15. And she's clinging to the Lord. That's, that's when you see the Lord is the only hope. He is life. In the darkness, the light shines brightly. In the darkness, when people say, I fear the Lord and worship him, that people actually believe it. Yeah, you do. Because you could only love the Lord in the midst of that. And some people could say, well, are you saying that God just wants me to suffer? No, I mean, the curse of sin has brought suffering into this world. That started earlier with Adam and Eve, and hence suffering comes in to all. But God has promised the seed of the woman. God has promised the serpent crusher to come. And that serpent crusher was not ultimately Isaac. The serpent crusher is Jesus who came into this world and he obediently surrendered himself in this world by becoming a human and then as Philippians 2 says, then by becoming obedient to the point of death and not just any kind of death, but death on the cross and then on the cross, he took the punishment that yours and my sins deserved and he satisfied the just punishment of God 
at Moriah in Jerusalem. God did not spare himself the pain of his only son, his only son's death. The triune God had planned before creation began to save in this way. If you suffer, God says, he suffers. And he did for our salvation. And so, in the darkest moment of human history, Jesus' death, his light shone the brightest. Right? And not only that, Jesus conquered sin, but then just a couple of days later, Jesus, he was, he was planted in the ground like a seed, and then as a seed dies and then grows and comes out into new life, Jesus rose from the dead. And so Jesus could even say in his ministry that he holds the keys, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. What's Jesus talking about? What God said to Abraham. The enemies aren't going to win. If the gates of hell won't prevail against Jesus, Jesus isn't just talking about earthly enemies. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the demons, the, the, the spiritual forces of darkness that Jesus beats. Jesus wins. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus, the gospel message has been going out to tribes, nations, and tongues. And he has been snatching people from the kingdom of darkness and placing them into the kingdom of light. Jesus wins. And you, many of you who have trusted in Christ, you have been snatched from darkness and placed in light. And you have been set free in the light so that God might work in you to image forth his son who suffered and that you might be able to say in the midst of suffering, oh Lord, purify me. Oh Lord, cause me to fear your name more and be in awe of you, to reverence you and love you and to worship you. Come what may, my life is not bound up here. It's bound up in freedom in you. Jesus wins. And so the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, actually uses the same words as what Moses writes in Genesis to refer to God the Father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And by the way, just, just by way of reminder, this is in a context where the Apostle Paul says, we're always accounted like sheep to be slaughtered. Sounds like a great life, right? And yet Paul says, what's going to separate us from God's love? Nothing. And what he gives is greater than what this world can take away. He will give us all things. So Ventura, Christians, fear God. Keep his commandments. Honor him. Don't waste your life on the frivolous. Depend on him. Surrender to him. Trust him. He is good. He is good. And he provides everything we need in Christ Jesus. Again, the one who fears God worships the Lord obediently surrendering to God and trusting in God's provision and goodness. Do you see how God has in your life and is purifying your faith and increasing your healthy fear, worship, 
and trust in him. Let's pray. Abba, thank you. Thank you for your mercies and graces to us. Now, help. You must make these realities known to us, not just, not just in our minds, but in our very beings, that we truly would know your worth, your grace, your, your pleasure, your delight. God, I pray, I pray we would love you so intently because you love us so eternally. For those here who don't trust you, who never have trusted you, I pray they would call on you and cry out for your salvation. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray our hands would be open to be able to say, keep testing me. Keep purifying me. All the way to heaven's door. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Join me in standing and hearing this word of blessing from our God. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.